Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm an associate editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Steve Cohen from the uh, University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Cohen, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Cohen, you've recently published an education in heart uh, paper entitled The Cardiac Consult for Patients Undergoing Non-Cardiac Surgery. What's your, can you describe perhaps for the audience your, uh, your background and how uh, your interest in this field came about? Yes, I've been doing this uh, for about 30 years now, originally at Downstate in Kings County uh, in New York and last five years in Miami. I run, I'm the medical director for the U-Health Preoperative Assessment Center, and I also run the medical consult services at Jackson Memorial Hospital and the University Hospital of Miami. So I've basically been doing medical consultation and preoperative evaluations for many years. Uh, I have authored or co-authored and edited uh, several books on the topic, perioperative medicine, and I'm also involved with UpToDate. I have several of the topics in cardiology and uh, perioperative medications on that website as well. So this is basically what I do on a regular basis from day to day. Excellent. And the the article, which is now live on the Heart website, is is very comprehensive and describes really, I guess, in detail the two guidelines that are current right now, which is the American College of Cardiology and the European Society of Cardiology guidelines uh, for perioperative assessment. I mean, would you be able to to tell the listeners about the perhaps some of the the similarities and the differences between those guidelines uh, at a high level, if that's possible? I, I will try. They're very similar for the most part. Uh, I was one of the reviewers for the American College of Cardiology guidelines, and this time the two societies collaborated uh, in terms of discussion and how they were going to proceed, and they did have some consensus for a lot of the things, uh, as opposed to before where they were, I think, completely independent. Uh, they basically agree on most topics now. I think there's a divergence a little bit in terms of uh, the European society being a little bit more liberal in their recommendations for who should be stress tested and also a little more liberal for who should get beta blockers in terms of which beta blocker they make a distinction, whereas the American College of Cardiology does not. And also, I think they're a little bit more liberal in terms of using the beta blockers prophylactically in patients who have fewer risk factors than the uh, American Society of Cardiology. Much more similar than previously is what you're saying, but not, yes, not, yes. certainly not identical by any means looking at the, yeah. uh, the individual papers here. Right. There are some differences. And in terms of a broad uh, assessment of patients, uh, you mentioned looking at three uh, different uh, risk assessment factors, notably the, the surgical risk factors, uh, other risk factors related to the patient's baseline functional capacity, and then finally clinical risk factors. Uh, and this, would, of course, would include the presence of things like coronary artery disease, heart failure, etc. Have these risk assessment categories changed in the most recent iteration of the guidelines, or are these long-standing uh, areas that are generally worked up in most patients? I think the biggest thing that's changed in this uh, series of guidelines is that instead of using a surgical procedure risk separate from the patient's clinical risk factors, and then combining that with exercise capacity, they're now recommending the use of one of three uh, tools to calculate risk. One is the revised cardiac risk index by Tom Lee, which is probably the most commonly used uh, risk index. That is very good at 
dividing patients into lower and higher risk categories, but it doesn't tell you what to do, and it underestimates risk in vascular surgery. The second one is the Gupta MI cardiac arrest calculator, which is based on a NISQIP database. It's only five factors, but you need to have your handheld device or so to go online to get it. You can't do it in your head. That only predicts complications of myocardial infarction and cardiac arrest. Heart failure is not included as a complication there. And then the most comprehensive and newest guideline from the American College of Surgeons, also developed from the NISQIP database, needs uh, the CPT code or the procedure code that the surgeon is planning to do. It's very specific to the procedure, and they can have any number of procedures in this index, along with 20 other variables. So it makes it a little bit more uh, cumbersome to use, but it's more complex in terms of what it can, and comprehensive in terms of what it can predict. It gives a, a mortality rate. It gives major complications or serious complications, and then cardiac complications, pulmonary complications, and a whole slew of others. The problem with the latter two is that they really have not been validated yet, whereas the RCRI has been widely validated. So that's one of the bigger things. They still use the same basic risk factors and definitions. The other difference between the American College of Cardiology and European Society of Cardiology is actually in their definition of procedural risk from before. As I said, now they're both incorporated into this risk tool, but the uh, American College of Cardiology had gone from a low intermediate and high risk procedure category to having just major vascular surgery, low risk procedures, and everything else in the, in the middle as an intermediate risk. And now they don't even define the procedures in terms of risk because they're incorporating them into this uh, risk calculator tool. Okay, I see. And in terms of telling uh, clinicians or, or doctors, nurses involved in estimating risk, do the risk scoring indices also tell you what to do? In other words, which patients require non-invasive testing or invasive angiography? Not, that, that's the problem with the risk indices. They classify patients as low, low risk, high risk, or low risk or elevated risk is what the ACC now calls it. Low risk being less than 1% chance of major cardiac complications and elevated risk being 1% or more. I don't particularly like that because I think there really should be more categories than less than 1% or 1% or more. I think there should be at least three categories. And it does not tell you what to do. I think somebody with a risk of 1% to 2% should be treated a little bit differently than somebody with a risk of 10%. So they don't tell you what to do, but the ACC algorithm and the European Society of Cardiology algorithms do incorporate these things. And as you go through the guideline, you'll get to a point where it will say, uh, this patient, really, we can't evaluate the patient, and we should consider doing a non-invasive test if the results will change management. And I think that's the biggest concept that people need to understand. A lot of times, no matter what you find, it doesn't change what you do, and therefore it's probably not indicated in a lot of situations. But those come down to really patients who don't have good adequate exercise capacity, meaning they can do four METs or more, and they have to also be going for a high-risk procedure or at least an intermediate-risk procedure. Because if somebody's going for a low-risk procedure or is at low risk, we can't make them any better, but we can make them worse by subjecting them to further tests. I understand. That's very clear. Thank you. So once a patient has been identified as being at, at high risk, there are a few measures uh, which we can do, which are mentioned in your review. Uh, the first one that comes up uh, is coronary revascularization, and uh, you, you go into detail about the coronary artery revascularization prophylaxis, the CARP trial. 
Do you want to talk about uh, that for a little bit in terms of whether that uh, evidence is still up to date, whether there are newer studies ongoing? That's unfortunately, we have very little evidence to base our recommendations on. So it becomes uh, expert or consensus opinion. And the CARP trial was now probably about over 10 years old. It was a VA trial of patients who had stable angina who were going for elective vascular surgery. And uh, they were only able to get about 500 patients into the trial, even though they screened almost 8,000. And what they found basically was that prophylactic revascularization on top of medical therapy did not improve the outcome. It was exactly the same at about 2.7 years down the road. Uh, They were underpowered to show any short-term benefit, but there was none there either. And one of the problems is that you need to consider the risk of the revascularization procedure, particularly if it's coronary artery bypass grafting, because these patients will have at least a 1% to 2% mortality, 1% to 2% chance of having a myocardial infarction or greater than that, and also a 1% or 2% chance of having a stroke. So if your risk of your non-cardiac surgery is not greater than 5%, you're basically subjecting a patient to a higher risk prophylactically to prevent something that may not happen. So I, I can't say that it still holds, but I think it does still hold. I don't think we'll have any better or newer information coming out. But the basic idea was that if you have patients on good medical therapy and they have stable angina, they're probably not going to benefit from prophylactic revascularization just to get them through surgery and neither society really recommends it in those cases. The European Society of Cardiology may be a little bit more liberal, saying somebody who's at high risk going for a high-risk vascular procedure, you can consider doing uh, stress testing, and then if the results of the stress test are bad, then you can consider revascularization. So I think that's the other uh, important concept. When we do stress testing for diagnostic purposes, it's different than when we do stress testing for deciding whether a patient needs revascularization before surgery. So an abnormal stress test shouldn't be reported as abnormal. You should say exactly what happened, what the patient's peak heart rate and blood pressure were, uh, why the test was stopped, did they have any EKG changes, uh, how much was an area of ischemia, was it just small? It had to be reversible. A fixed defect doesn't really count as an abnormal test. So what you're looking for is multiple or large areas that are reperfusion abnormalities if you do a nuclear study or wall motion abnormalities if you do an echocardiogram. And if it's a significant abnormality on that test, then you might consider revascularization in those patients. Otherwise, the indications are the same as if a patient were not going for surgery. Okay, that's very clear, thank you. Can we talk about the uh, difficult area of beta blockers in uh, in this uh, respect? Sure, Uh, this is probably the most controversial area Still not a good answer if you ask me, and I think there is a little divergence between the Europeans and the Americans. Europeans' attitude from some of the articles that have been published basically seem to indicate that it's very harmful. Uh, I think it's not that it's harmful, it may not be beneficial and it's more neutral. But the guidelines have all been downgraded. There aren't any 1A recommendations anymore except to continue beta blockers in patients who are already on them. In terms of starting them prophylactically, I think the societies both sort of agree if you have a significant ischemia on a stress test, then it's an indication that you can put the patient on beta blockers, which is what you would do medically anyway. And then the divergence that I mentioned a little bit earlier, the ACC guidelines say that if you have three or more RCRI factors and you're going for vascular or high-risk surgery, then it may be reasonable to start them. It's now down to like a 2B recommendation. 
Whereas the European Society of Cardiology says if you have, I think, more than one, if you have two risk factors, it's okay. So they're a little bit more liberal, despite the attitude that, in my belief, that they think that they're more harmful than the Americans do. But we don't have any good evidence, really, in terms of what the beta blockers do for outcome. There are numerous meta-analyses that all vary based on which studies they include. The biggest controversy is the decreased studies uh, with Don Polderman's as one of the authors uh, that have been discounted for the most part, although not necessarily retracted. Those were the studies that used risoprolol started in advance and titrating the dose to control heart rate. And they all were basically positive trials for beta blockers. There were three other metoprolol studies that showed no benefit. And then the largest was the POISE trial, which showed no benefit and actually harm in terms of increasing stroke and uh, mortality. I shouldn't say no benefit. They did decrease uh, non-fatal myocardial infarctions. So my summary for beta blockers is that they all seem to show that they will decrease myocardial ischemia and infarction, but they will also be associated with increased risk of bradycardia and hypotension, which will usually lead to a somewhat increased risk of stroke, even though the risk of stroke is small. And my interpretation for the risk of mortality is depending on which studies you include or exclude, it's probably neutral. I don't think it's really harmful, but it's certainly not helpful. So that's my summary of, of the beta blockers, and it's still up in the air. I don't know that we're actually going to get any more studies done to show it. But okay. observational studies do show that if you have a number of risk factors, it can either be two or three, having a beta blocker on board seems to be associated with a beneficial outcome. But these are just observational trials, not randomized controlled trials. Okay, and how do we uh, how do we sit with regard to statin therapy for uh, reducing perioperative risk? For statins, there are again only very few, not really good randomized controlled trials. Two of which were the decreased trials, uh, but from numerous observational studies, it seems that there's a potential benefit to having a statin on board. And I think both societies will say if you have indications for the statin and happen not to be on one it's reasonable to start the statin preoperatively as they haven't been associated with any significant downside or adverse effects perioperatively. And there is evidence that they do seem to be beneficial, at least from the observational studies. What they don't tell us is which statin to use, what dose to use, and how far in advance you would need to use it to start it for it to be beneficial. Okay, do you have any particular personal habits that you tend to, to, uh, to recommend? Based on some of the medical studies, not the surgical studies, I tend to use the more potent statin, uh, either rosuvastatin or atorvastatin, and I recommend that we start it at at least half the maximum dose. So for atorvastatin, I would say to use 40 milligrams, even though they used 80 in some of the medical trials, and for rosuvastatin, I would use uh, 20, but I have no real evidence to support that. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Is there anything else, uh, Dr. Cohn, that you wanted to, to tell the heart audience? Any, any pearls of your uh, uh, long, uh, distinguished career in this area? Or do you think everything is, is in the, uh, the excellent article you've published? I think everything's in the article, but I would like to mention again that most of the time people get stress tests, they're not indicated, they're either normal or they don't change management. And I happen to be a test minimalist. I rarely order a stress test. If I order one stress test a month, that's a lot. And it rarely comes out something that I didn't expect. 
when I do it, I do it on a patient that I would have done it in if they came to my office and not going for surgery, or I do it because I can't really get a good handle on what the patient's history is and exercise capacity is. They have some atypical chest pain or shortness of breath. I can't say whether it's really stable or it's not stable. Most of the time, I don't think it's anything, but in those cases, I may go ahead and get a stress test. But it's very rare that I do this, and it's very rare. I can't even remember the last patient that went to revascularization prior to non-cardiac surgery. Okay. So my emphasis is it's not usually necessary. Well, that's very uh, fantastic advice for everybody to take away. And um, the paper is now live on the HEART website for those who uh, to wish to go and read it. And I would recommend that everybody does. I certainly reminded myself of a great deal of information that wasn't in the forefront of my mind. So, uh, Dr. Cohen, many thanks again for joining us for this episode of the HEART podcast. Thank you, and I hope the information is helpful to your viewers. <laughs> Thank you.